All right, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a stormy edition of Kabbalah Cafe. I will tell you that because of the storm outside, right, because it's like thundering, so we have to make this a very dramatic edition. And so, and so, <laughs> some of my statements may or may not be punctuated by thunder and lightning, in which case all will be going well. So today's topic is delicacies, and as I mentioned in the synagogue, this is not just a reference to the breakfast, although it could be a reference to the breakfast, but it's also a, it, it's primarily a reference to a story that we are going to speak about in a moment and analyze, a biblical story that we're going to analyze. But before we do that, I want to reset the room a little bit and, uh, and share and just kind of um, recap what we did last week so that we can get a running start into this week's conversation. So last week, we spoke about three types of people. Tzadikim, Rishoyim, and Benonim. So what are, these three, what are these three types of people? What are these three types of people? Tzadikim are what we would call righteous. Rishoyim, I'm going to speak nicely, not so righteous. And Benonim, in the middle. And if you and I were to kind of speak about this in mathematical terms, perhaps, or in, I don't know, scale terms? What's scale terms? I don't know. I don't know what that means. But like in balance terms, right? So a tzaddik would be you know, merits versus demerits, way high in the merits, very little on the demerits. A rasha would be high in the demerits and low in the merits. And a banani would be right in the middle, average 50-50. And that's how most people would have, would have applied these terms, but yeah. not in Kabbalah, huh? So Rambam says you should always think you're basically in the middle. He says you have to assume that you have equal. Yes, yes. And you don't want to take that next sin can push you. Is that right? Yes, Maimonides beautifully says, right. So that would be a more traditional way of understanding it. And that's how Maimonides um, encourages us to look at life. So let me just play off of that because it's a really beautiful thing that Sam just mentioned. So Maimonides says that every time we're faced with a moral choice, we should envision the world as hanging in the balance. Um, 50%, like 50-50, good energy and negative energy. And the next good mitzvah, or this good deed that we're doing, can, will tip, can, will tip the scales for good or toward the side of goodness and bring in just blessings and redemption, as it were, to the world, personal, global, etc., that's how Rambam says we should look at it. And that's literally 50-50. Good stuff, bad stuff. It's kind of like I use the example of like the, the kids' arcade stuff. You know, you take like a kid to these, like they have bowling in arcades or just arcades. They have all these flashing games. I like to call it like a, a miniature Vegas, right? It's like, and I know Fran is joining us live from Vegas, from the real Vegas. Yeah. But this is like, but this is, you know, um, uh, you know, these, these games are all flashing and it used to be you put in tokens. Remember that? You put in tokens. Mm -hmm. Not anymore. You get a credit card. Each kid gets not a real credit card. You, you, I mean, you, you use a card or payment. You get, hey, friend. Um, and then you get, you load it up on a card and then you swipe the card when you play the game. It's like a whole thing. Anyway, but there's one game that I love. I've spoken about this before in previous classes. Um, it's a game where you do get, um, somehow you do get like a coin or maybe... Maybe you hit a button and a coin drops. Either way, there's like a platform that moves back and forth. 
and it's got all these coins piled up. And if you put in the coin at the right spot and it, it and the platform not and that coin knocks the other coins and then the whole thing topples, then you get it used to be it would spit out tickets, not anymore. You just your car gets loaded up with uh, with more points that you can you know, and after a thousand points, you can get a rubber eraser and all is well, and you're wondering like what happened, and then it always ends in tears. This is a parent pro tip. It will always end in tears and disappointment. We had a great day, but everyone's miserable. That's just the way it is. It's just, just too, it's like too intense, just way too intense. But I digress, back to the story. So it's kind of like that one coin, when it falls in the right spot, it can tip the scales, and it can knock down many coins, as it were. One coin, one mitzvah, can have an incredible positive effect. Now that's a typical way that we would understand Tzaddik Rosh Abenani. Tzaddik is the righteous person, way more good deeds than negative deeds. The Russia has the opposite ratio, and the Benani is in the middle, but not according to Kabbalah. According to Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy, it, there's a completely different definition. A tzaddik is not just someone who does more good things than bad things. A tzaddik is someone who, inside and outside, is pure. When I say pure, I mean righteous, holy, um, uh, dedicated to the mission, to helping others, to connecting with God. A tzaddik not only does the right thing, says the right thing, thinks the right thing, a tzaddik wants to think say and do the right thing. It's not only on the outside, it's on the inside. Good morning. <laughs> Battling the elements. <laughs> what a storm. Tzaddik is rare. Tzaddik is super rare. Right? Super, super duper rare. It says that Talmud says, that maybe the Medrash or Talmud says, that Hashem saw that there would be very few tzaddikim, so He dispersed them, allocated them, distributed them throughout the generations, which means that in every generation, a handful, maybe. Right? Super rare. There's 36 hidden ones. But I've been sworn to... Oh, oops. So, oh, man. I, <laughs> anyway, so, so, uh, so there's tzaddikim. They're extremely rare. When I say a handful, maybe a handful that we know about. There are others that we don't know about. A Russia, someone who inside has negative drives and experiences them on the outside as well. When I say the outside, again, there's how you feel and there's what you do. So on the inside, there's negativity. On the outside, there's also negativity. That's the Russia. The Bainini is the intriguing, this is the intriguing mystery person. And it's not a mystery, but it's like the intriguing individual. The Bainini is someone who on the inside has the same complications as the Russia. If you did a spiritual MRI, the Bainini and the Russia would look identical, hmm. right? All the drives and the ego and the inside and the, all that stuff is, is just brewing within. But on the outside, looks exactly like a tzaddik. On the outside, in action, speech, and even conscious thought, the tzaddik is in a space of holiness and selflessness. So that's the persona of a tzaddik. So this is just a quick, a quick recap of last week. So tzaddik, rasha, benini, perfect inside, outside, not perfect inside, outside, imperfect inside, the benini is, but perfect on the outside. That is, it's like the bagels. Crispy on the outside, chewy on the inside. The benini, perfect on the outside. I don't know if we've achieved maximum bagel perfection this morning. Hopefully we did. It took an extra few minutes, but nonetheless... Um, the Bainini is someone who's perfect on the outside, imperfect on the inside. Now, if l lest this sound like some 
wild and ridiculous ideal, you should know that the reason why this type of person is called the Bainani is because it's very attainable for the average person, which means for the every person. You don't have to be a tzaddik to be a Bainani. Literally, you don't have to be because that's a contradiction of terms. All you need to do is be in control of your expression, which means despite what's going on inside, to express yourself in a healthy, holy way, that is what's required. I'm not trying to minimize that. That's very difficult. When there's, give you a quick example. Let's say there's a very juicy, gossipy conversation going on. By the way, you know what I heard about? <laughs> anyway, let's say there's a very juicy conversation going on. And, uh, and, and you know that Jewish values tell us that we should you know, desist. We should not be participating in, um, hey, Matt, good to see you. Lashon Hara. In Lashon Hara, right. Lashon Hara is negative talk. By the way, what's interesting about Lashon Hara, there's three forms of forbidden talk. Okay? Number one, Lashon Hara. Number two, Rechilut. And number three, Motzi Shemra. No, I'm sorry. Let me, let me reorder that. Rechilut, Lashon Hara, and Motzi Shemra. I'll, I'll give you a quick definition. Rechilut means gossiping. Not even negative. Just, you know, I saw so-and-so in the store and whatever. Still forbidden, by the way. I know what you're thinking. What are we going to talk about? By the way, it's raining outside. Do you know when the rain's going to end? I'm kidding. Maybe we're left with the weather. Maybe we're left with the weather. I don't know. But according to, um, according to Jewish law, rechilut, which is seemingly innocuous gossip, is also forbidden. Why? I know, right? Again, what are we going to speak about? Why, why is it forbidden? Why is it prohibited? I mean, look, there's many reasons why. Uh, um, number one, what starts off as an innocent uh, schmooze about someone else can quickly turn negative. Number two, imagine if you tell your, your friend, you're meeting your friend, you're like, oh, you know who I saw at the movie theater yesterday? I saw, I saw Bob. And you mean it like innocently. I was at the theater, I saw Bob. Meanwhile, Bob said that they weren't able to meet your friend yesterday because they had a medical appointment. Aha, Bob is busted. <laughs> anyway, the point is that we don't know what can happen, what, what can evolve from our seemingly innocent schmoozerai talk right, about others. So therefore, Torah says, don't. That's level one. That's the most innocent. The next level is Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara is when you speak negatively about someone, even though it's true. So it's true, but it's negative. It's disparaging. Don't do it. Number three is the worst. That's when you make up negative stuff about the other. That's the most interesting and the most fun. However, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm off the record. Uh, that's that, but that's the most devious. That's straight up, you know, evil. That's like just making up false rumors about someone that uh, uh, um, paints them in a negative light. And that obviously is not kosher. Why do I mention all this? Because imagine you are standing there. See, when it comes to all these things, it's not only if you're the initiator of the conversation, even if you are the participant in the conversation, it's problematic. So imagine you're in this conversation. Sorry, imagine you're standing and this conversation is happening around you. And you start feeling yourself getting pulled in because you have some, you have some info. You've got, you've got stuff to share. You got some juice, as we used to call it back in the day. Right? You got some, you got some 411. No one says that. Anyway. Um, and you feel yourself getting drawn into the, to the conversation and you want to participate. You want to share something. So the desire to get drawn into the conversation would not be felt by a tzaddik. A tzaddik 
it would be would be allergic to this conversation. But you're not a tzaddik. This is not to you. I just speak to myself. I'm not a tzaddik. So I feel myself getting drawn into the conversation. I now have two choices. Choice number one, behind door number one, is to enter the conversation. Door number two is make an excuse and step away. It's like, oh, I got to run. I'm so sorry. You know, knock yourselves out. <laughs> I got to get out of here. Now, option three could be, you know, transform the situation and encourage everybody to study Torah instead of speaking negatively. All right, maybe we'll try that one day. But, but in the immediate, there's two options. Participate, you know, follow your heart and jump into the convo or step away. This is the demarcation. That's the line. It's a thin line. It's the line between a Russia and a, and a Benini. Tzaddik wouldn't even want to be, Tzaddik wouldn't even have the desire to be part of the conversation. A Russia, and again, that may sound like a harsh term, but it just means someone who's, who's succumbing. The Russia jumps into the conversation and says, oh, this feels good. Let's do it. <laughs> We've all been there. Right. The, the Benini says, although I want to, I'm not going to. The Benini practices self-control. This is one of the most important tenets in Kabbalah. That is that we have free, and in Judaism, it's like the, the foundation of Jewish faith is the, is, the, is the tenet of free choice. The idea that you, may, you, you could really, 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 really want to do something or say something, but you have the ability to hold yourself back and not. Or conversely, you might really not want to do something. I really don't want to help my friend. I really don't want to, whatever it is, something positive, right? You have the ability to, to do it anyway. I mentioned last week, we teach our kids this all the time. Right. Even though you want to bop Sally over the head because she took your block, don't do it. You don't say, don't want to bop Sally. You may say that. But it's even more important to say, even though you want to, don't do it anyway. Right? Be in control. Have that experience of feeling and suppressing. Now, this leads us to the new ideas of, of today. Yeah, jump in, Larry. What if it's not about a person, but about an issue? Mm. Issues can be discussed. Yeah. But don't, see, one of the, one of the skills in, uh, um, that may be, whatever, one of the, one of the skills that, that would, it would be great if it's reintroduced is the ability to discuss issues without getting so personal. Right? Discuss the issues. I, I think uh, it was Rabbi Telushkin, Joseph Telushkin, prolific author, who in his biography of the Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote, the Rebbe personified the art of disagreeing while not being disagreeable. The Rebbe didn't agree with everybody, but there's an art to disagreeing with somebody, but without making it into, into a conflict, being without disagreeable. Like, we, we don't see eye to eye. That's okay, right? We can still get along. And it's, it's, a, it's an art that I think would be, would, would all, the, the world would be better off if, uh, if, if, we, if we pursue that art. Um, but here's what I want to get to today. There's some beautiful ideas that are um, encoded in biblical tales. And uh, I just, just a, quick, a quick disclaimer, I don't know, not disclaimer, a quick intro to this. You know, we, we might study the biblical stories when we're really young, you know, in school and Sunday school and whatever, in, in Jewish day school. Um, I'll keep these for right now. We're going to pass these out in a second, but thank Give me one second. So we might um, study these stories when we're young. The problem is when we study the, the biblical stories when we're young, they get 
concretized. They almost get set in what I would call a fairly immature way of understanding. And that's not, I'm not trying not, I'm trying not to be judgmental. Or I'm not being judgmental. I'm just saying, maybe I am, I don't know. But it's like, it's, it's, it's due to no one's fault, but it gets locked into this, um, it, it could get locked into a space where it feels like a bit of a Baba Mice. You know what a Baba Mice is? Mm-hmm. Like a, I don't know, a fairy tale. Old wives' tale. Old wives' tale. It's like, oh, Adam and Eve, they ate from the tree and they got knowledge. Really? It was a magical tree? A magical fruit? Granted them knowledge? What kind of fruit is that? Right? I could use some of that. Like, what, what, like what are we really talking about here? Or, um, you know, Noah's Ark, or any of these stories, and, and there's a way to look at them. Way, the, the, way we, the way we understand anything as a child is going to be different than we understand it as an adult. I think part of the challenges and the problem is that oftentimes we study these stories, we study the Torah, biblical stories when we're younger, and for many people, we don't study them as we get older and mature on a deeper level. And so my goal today is to share with you a few biblical stories and understanding how they, what they mean as we mature and understand them from a much deeper perspective. What I'm really trying to say is sometimes Torah is wasted on the young. I'm kidding, not wasted. God forbid. But I mean, like, it's, it, it, you know, and then you tell somebody, hey, let's learn, let's learn the Torah. And it's like, oh, no, I already know the stories. It's like, hold on. <laughs> you know those stories. You ain't seen nothing yet. So let's, I, I want to share with you this. Please take a pass. Please take a pass. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, and we are going to relearn some stories. The first story, which I, which I titled Struggle, is one that I, I quoted last week. I believe I quoted it last week. But we're going to look at it from another perspective today which is going to be very powerful. I will pull this up online, um, online as well. Here we are. Okay. Struggle. All right, I'm going to read this. Okay, so the first part, the first two paragraphs are coming from the book of Genesis, Ayi Beratius, chapter 25, verses 19 through 23. And this is the beginning of the Torah portion of Toldot. Toldot is where it, the, the Torah, the Bible, chronicles the saga, the children of Yitzchak and Rivka, Isaac, and Rebekah. All right, here we go. These are the generations of our lives. I'm kidding. These are the gener. Wasn't that a soap opera? Yeah. yeah. Days, the, of our days of our lives. Days of our lives. I'm like, generations of our lives? No. Days of our lives. All right. General Hospital. The young and the restless. These are the generations of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Okay, let's continue. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to himself for a wife. We got a lot of bio about Rivka, about Rebekah. Anyway, so Isaac married her when he was 40. Let's continue. Isaac prayed to the Lord opposite his wife because she was barren. And the Lord accepted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So, again, they both pray. Opposite his wife means that they were both praying in complementary ways, and they were both praying for a child, and indeed, God accepts the prayer, and she becomes pregnant. I also once saw a commentary that I love. Commentary says, what does it mean that they prayed opposite each other? They didn't know at that point in time which direction to pray. 
We, physical direction. Physical direction. So opposite means they each prayed in a corner of the room. So one would cover like the northeast, mm-hmm. the other would cover the southwest, cover all four directions, cover all, bases. cover all the bases. I thought that was an original way of looking at it. I don't, you know, that's not, it's not the only way to understand what it means opposite, but I really like that. I really like that idea is that they were praying, you know, kind of opposite corners. I think it's a cool, I think it's a cool idea. Um, okay, let's continue. So she gets pregnant. Now, and I mentioned this last week, but we're going to go a little bit deeper today. The children struggled within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I like this? Which kind of means that she was saying, like, if this pregnancy is, is so difficult, then I regret wanting to become pregnant. If this is what it's like, like, I, I, I didn't know this. I didn't know this before. So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the way the commentators understand this is she went to ask a prophet that was uh, uh, there at the time. So the Lord said to her through the prophet, two nations are in your womb and two kingdoms will separate from your innards. One kingdom will become mightier than the other and the elder will serve the younger. And I said last week, based on my recollection, I said last week that the two kingdoms, the two nations... These are, this is a reference to the two forces that we have inside. Did I mention this last week? I think I did. The godly soul, the animal soul, the higher self, the lower self. These will constantly be in, 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 um, in struggle with each other unless you're a tzaddik, in which case it's, it, you only have one voice inside, but otherwise we have two voices inside um, depicted in comics as the little... Remember, remember those guys? The, devil. the little devil and the little angel with the halo, Right. Judaism has a bit of a different take on it. It's not a devil and an angel. It's a godly soul. It's an animal soul, a higher self, a lower self. Either way, it's these du- dueling forces. And that's, the, and that's the constant battle and the struggle. Now let's continue and let's look at um, Rashi. Now underneath those two paragraphs, so you'll, you'll see two more paragraphs. And we have here Rashi. Look at the first paragraph. It says, and these are the generations of Isaac, the son of Abraham, that Rashi quotes those words that we had you know, in the biblical text. And Rashi says, who are these generations? Generations also means like descendants. Who are these generations of Isaac? This refers to Jacob and Esau, the twins, mentioned in this section. And the Hebrew word for that is parsha, mentioned in the parsha. Jacob and Esau mentioned this parsha. That is who the generations are. That's going to be significant soon, so hold that. Keep that in the back of your mind. Let's go to the next piece. Parsha, there's nothing in chapter, it means section. Uh, parsha, we use parsha in our, in our colloquial you know, language to refer to the Torah portion. Um, parsha also could more specifically refer to a specific section within a Torah portion. Now, struggled. He's late. I just want everyone to know. <laughs> Um, you want to tell him to give us a test? <laughs> <laughs> Such a trouble. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right, Jeff, good morning. Welcome. <laughs> Here, grab, grab this. We're doing. I apologize for being No, no, no worries. You're good. No worries. Struggled. Struggled. Uh, Rashi says on the word struggle that the, um, the, the original word was, it says, the children, the children struggled within her. So what's struggled? Our rabbis in Genesis Rabbah, which means basically Bereshit Rabbah, it's a Midrashic text, interpreted the word Vayis Rotsatsu as an expression of running Rotsa. 
rotsa. Vayisrotzitzu could mean struggle, but in Hebrew, the same root letters can also form the word run or running, which means that the two unborn children, the fetuses, they were running. What does that mean? So here's the explanation. Let's continue inside. When she passed by the entrances of the Torah academies of Shem and Eber, Jacob would run and struggle to come out. And when she passed the entrance of a temple of idolatry, Esau would run and struggle to come out. And, and this is what it means by Yisrotsu. They struggled. It means that they were each rushing to emerge and be born. When she passed by a shul, a synagogue, well, it doesn't say that, a Torah academy, right? A Torah center, as it were. So Jacob would run out. Yaakov would be like, I, I need to go. I need to learn. And when she passed by a place of idolatry, at which there were plenty around, right? This was a time of paganism. So when she, pa- when she passed by a temple of idolatry, Esau would struggle to come out. Let's go, let's, let's end. Here's the question. And I remember learning this as a kid. We learned Chumash, we learned the Torah, we learned the, the biblical story, and we learned this commentary in Rashi. I remember this as a kid, learning this. And the question that's asked on this is, it doesn't make sense. What doesn't make sense? Here's what's problematic about this. We know that there's a statement in the Talmud, Hakol Bidei Shomayim, Chutz Miyirat Shomayim, which translates as, everything is in the hands of heaven, except for the fear of heaven. Which means that God is in control of everything, except for our moral choices. That's where free choice comes in, as we've been discussing this morning. We have free choice. Tzadik Verasha Loka Amar, it says, before a person's born, there's a lot that's predestined. Where you're going to live is predestined. I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but where you chose to live was already predestined. You think you chose. Remember that, uh, the Truman? Yeah, they think also. Remember the Truman Show? Remember that movie? Mm -hmm. Right? Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey, living his life, doing his thing. Turns out it's all a setup. Life is like a box of chocolates, but also we'll see how many movies we can get in in this uh, in this uh, in this bit. No, but like so, life is a lot of life is predestined, predetermined. A lot of it is, with the exception of righteousness and goodness. It lots of things are are dictated before we're born. Tzaddik virasha lo kamar. But whether we're righteous or wicked, that is not predestined. That's up to us. That's kind of messed up, honestly, because it is predestined, okay? You're predestined to say live in a bad neighborhood, okay? You will, it's easy to adopt the bad choices that other people make around you. Correct. So, so in moral, are we really in control of our moral? Excellent question. Excellent question. That excellent question. And in fact, that's at the heart of this Rashi, which we're going to explain in a second. Hold your question. Huh? Yeah, the question is, well, one second. If, if we're, we're, I use the example where we're living, right? If that's determined, predestined, you know, from above, then that means that some people, I'll just paraphrase, are given uh, a, a, a greater challenge in life because they, they grow up in a neighborhood in which Maybe there's more crime, etc., and the proclivity is to is to follow you know what's around you, and so that doesn't seem fair. There were parents that are that are abusive or dysfunctional, exactly. So so it seems unfair. Now, so 
I mean, we have two choices. Either way, it's unfair. One could say it's unfair. We have two choices. Either say that that's a cosmic accident. There's no, there's no design. Or it says by design. I mean, either way, it's the same. It's just, uh, it's, it, 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 it manifests the same way. But I think the difference is, in, as we'll see how this plays out in, in, in understanding Rashi's commentary in a powerful way. So the question is like this. If righteousness and lack of righteousness is not predetermined you know, before we make that choice, then how is it that in the womb already, which is pre-birth, Jacob, Yaakov, was running out to study Torah, and Esau was running out to serve idols. If righteousness and wickedness is not predetermined, is not predestined, if that's up to us, then how in utero, how are these two, how are these twins each pulling in a different direction? It makes no sense. The way the mystics explain this is as follows, and this is, I think this answers your question, and this just, just expands the idea and, and, and really our, our deeper understanding of ourselves and what's within in a very powerful way, and that is, that, all that, that although righteousness and wickedness is not predestined, in other words, moral choice is always in our hands, nonetheless, there are different proclivities given to different people. Some people are leaning more toward naturally wanting what's right. And some people, by nature, lean toward what is not right. That is, that is the way they were created. Some created this way. There are some people created like a Yaakov, like a Jacob, and some created like an Esau, like an Esau. That, that's the way it is. But and one, one second. But what's the point? The point is that even the one who's created like an Esau, like an Esau, should resist the natural temptation, the lowly urges, etc., the, the, the negative, the negative um, drive inside, resist, push against it, and make the healthy choice. Now, it's easier for the one who's the, ja- who's the Jacob, what, what I'm basically saying is, someone who's born on the path of a tzaddik, it's going to be easier to make the right choice, as opposed to someone who's born on the path that has all of this neg- negative drives, which is, again, most of us, um, these negative drives inside. It's much more difficult. But that doesn't mean that Esau, that, that Esau was predestined to be wicked. He was predestined to have negative tendencies, but he was expected, as we all are, to resist the negativity and to rise above it, which also speaks to our environment and our upbringing. Some people are raised in a perfect environment, and may, whatever that means. I don't, know if that's, I don't know if that means anything, but whatever. Conceptually, even if we wanted to argue that, right? And, and may have an easier time following a certain path. Some people are raised in a different way. For the person that's raised in the other way, in the more challenging environment, the, 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 the challenge would be to rise above it, to push against it, to use that as a catalyst for growth despite the upbringing, etc. That is the way that Judaism, specifically Kabbalah, looks at this. And even, the truth is, Maimonides speaks about this. He speaks about the person who is naturally and intrinsically wired in a righteous way, and he speaks about the person who's naturally wired in a not-so-perfect way. And each one has their purpose, right? Each one has their purpose. Is that why Aesop gave up his birthright for the students? Ace, so what's, what, what happens with Aesop is 
that he's a guy who was born with that natural, you know, with a very um, active animal nature, but he never rose above it. Remember when his father wanted to give him the blessings before his passing? And his younger brother trick, took, took, the from, took it from him? Question always asked, everyone asked, how do, what was the father thinking? What was Isaac thinking? Yitzchak. What, was, was he unaware of his son? Of his sons? Why did he want to give him the blessings? And, and if his wife knew, if, if, if Rebecca, if Rivka knew that the older son, Esau, was not worthy of the blessings, so she sends her younger son, Jacob, Yaakov, to dress, husband's blind, so to dress up in the older brother's clothes and to sneak the blessings, why not have a conversation with her husband? And say, listen, you got the wrong guy. Maybe he was senile. You could say that. You could say that. But there's another way to look at it. It's a very good question. That's what I'm saying. You can learn these stories as kids. And like, the whole story doesn't make sense. Once you, once you like go past the surface, the whole story doesn't make sense. It like falls apart. But when you look a little bit deeper, you realize that there's a whole drama here. Um, Asav was a guy who did not live a righteous life, but he had a tremendous potential. His potential was somebody who is extremely passionate, extremely passionate, and, and had the opportunity to, like, to push against that passion and to rise above it. And that's a tremendous feat. If he would have done that, he would have been on an exceedingly high level if he would have done that. If he would have done that, he would have been on an exceedingly high level. His father wanted one thing from him. His father wanted him to be blessed and energized to be able to finally overcome his demons. You with me on this? That was the intention for the blessing. He wanted to give his son, Asaph, the spiritual jolt to be able to overcome his demons and conquer them once and for all. Rebecca knew that that was not going to happen. And to give him the blessings was to, was to, was to continue enabling. And it wouldn't help him. It would continue, continue enabling, and he would fall into more negativity. And so she said, it's got to go, to, it's gotta go to, to Yaakov, to Jacob, the younger son, etc. But the point here is as follows. Not everyone has the same internal experience. There are Yaakovs, and there are Esavs. Esavs are not destined to be wicked. They're destined to feel tempted into wickedness. But the, 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 the ideal of the ace of is to feel it, to push it down, and to keep on moving in a positive direction. Ace of could have been the ultimate Bainani. He chose not to. That's where choice comes in. Not, everyone's per, not everyone does the right thing. Ace of chose to follow his negative inclination inside. And that is what steered him in a negative path. So that was ace of, yeah. I always questioned as a child, why couldn't he give them both blessings? Why was there only one? It's a blessing. He could have blessed them both on his deathbed. He, d- he ends he up did. blessing them both. He ends up blessing them both. Good, good. It's a good question. Different blessing. It's a different type of blessing. The blessing that he wanted to give Ace of was the physical blessing. Because he was a physical guy. Take the stuff and transform it. And his mother, his wife, mother knew that, Rebecca knew that it wasn't going to happen. So she said, give this blessing, the physical blessing, even to Yaakov, who was the guy who sits in the tent and studies all day. What does he need? What does he need good bagels for? Nonetheless, 
right? Nonetheless. Um, yeah, Dr. Maxi. So what does that mean, practically speaking, for us if I have a son who appears to be an Asa and I want him to be able to overcome or empower him to overcome his negative inclination? I mean, do you direct a child like that to just more positive events, more Torah study, more helping other people? get your mind away from the things that you're dwelling on. Of course, nowadays they can sit and dwell on the computer with all right. sorts of things for right. hours on end. So, I mean, do you try to redirect them and keep them more occupied? And what do you do as they get older and older from a practical point of view for us in this country? Once a child's over 18, they're not a child and you have very little that you can do other than influence and pray. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. And it seems to be at the heart of this biblical drama where the father had one idea of what should happen with the child, the mother had another idea. And we know what happens is the mother got her way, right? And, and ultimately her way, her path, her understanding was that the, the, the strongest influence is going to happen not from the father, but from his own brother, right? Hopefully from the brother. That the brother, that Yaakov getting the blessings can ultimately influence his older brother to kind of, uh, you know, perfect that. And, uh, you know, perfect that. And in other words, improve his ways. You're asking an excellent question. You know, what do you do when you see someone that you love, whether it's a child or an adult, that's, I would call it, using modern terminology, dysregulated, which means that there's a lot of stuff going on inside that's also manifesting on the outside. So they're not being able to regulate their own behavior that we call it dysregulated. So what do you do? It's a, it's a very, very hard, it's a very difficult question. I mean, what do we do when we're dysregulated, when we get upset or enraged or out of control in, in, in whatever way it is? How do we regulate ourselves? Some people step out of the room and count to 10,000, right? <laughs> right? For some people, it depends on the situation, right? Sometimes you need, you need to call someone to kind of talk things through. Uh, some people, you know, obviously there's, there's, there's professional uh, um, help and consultation, and, and many people find it as well in spirituality, in prayer, meditation, and, and Torah study, and, and, and doing mitzvot. Some people find it in volunteering and helping others. Um, there's, a, there's a great story that I, and, and, and I don't know that I have, I, I think you're asking too good of a question for me to give a simplistic answer. The question's too good for me to give a simple answer. And you have to know the other person, or your, in this case, your child, and you have to know, you kind of have to know what's going on, and you may not get it right. And at the end of the day, I don't know that anyone can fix something for someone else. You try to give them the best you know, that you can give them and empower them the best way and educate the best way and love and care, and then ultimately everyone has free choice. Um, but I was going to say something that I'm now forgetting what I was about to say. I was saying, um, I don't remember. Okay, maybe it'll come to me. I was going to share an anecdote, but it, as, you know, we always talk about chachma. Remember chachma? Chachma is when you have a flash of insight, but it's not yet developed in bina. And I always say this, that if you don't focus on your chachma and develop it, it can go. So there's an example. <laughs> I had an idea. <laughs> And I kept on going, and I didn't interrupt myself, which I usually do, and now it's gone. Okay. Anyway, at, least I didn't interrupt you at some <laughs> no worries. at some point, um, it may or may not come back. All right. So, the idea of 
Rivka being pregnant with twins, and these two beings, right, pulling in different directions, doesn't mean that one was destined to be good and the other one destined to be evil. One was that, de- and this is a very important distinction, one was destined to live a life of spiritual um, seamlessness, this seamlessness to be spiritually seamless and the other was destined to live a life of spiritual friction where their inside will be at odds with their calling of how to behave and the the objective of that would be to push against it now based on everything we've said last week and so far this week if i ask you to rank tzaddik and benini how would you rank them Talking about like higher versus lower. Where would you put them? Benini has to be higher because he's, yeah. he's, he no. has to overcome. You guys are like all, you guys are all on to me already. Hold on. Simply speaking, you guys are getting way too sophisticated. Okay, on me. Thank you. Simply speaking, you would say, I mean, you wouldn't say, I would say, all right, I'm not asking you these questions anymore. You guys are too smart. <laughs> I know, I know. You've been. <laughs> I know. I've created a monster. Um, so yeah, it's a setup. So we one one might think that if you had to rank these personas, you would put the tzaddik above the bainani. Why? Because tzaddik is perfect inside and out. Can't get any better than that. Bainani is struggling and eking out good stuff, you know, despite how they feel inside. You put a tzaddik above a bainani. However. However, according to Jewish spiritual thought, the Bainani is actually, on one level, in one way, greater than the Tzaddik. To understand this, let's go back to the handout. Let's take a look at the sheet that I prepared. Let me share my screen once again. We'll pull this up. Oh, 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 one more thing. Remember the Rashi, the first Rashi, and these are the generations of Isaac, the son of Abraham, Jacob, and Esau mentioned in the section? So the Rebbe explains, you know what that means? Yaakov and Esav mentioned in the Parsha. As they exist in the Parsha, Yaakov and Esav are both holy. One holy in this way, one holy in that way. But as they exist not on the page, but in real life, one ended up as a tzaddik and one ended up as a rasha. But in, con- in, in concept, both are Eilat Toldot uh, Yitzchak. Both are the generations of, of Yitzchak. In other words, both are holy. One in this way, one in this, in this seamless way, and one in a friction way. They had the potential for greatness. Both of them, one followed the path of least resi- of, of no resistance, and one, I, I guess... Both one That's not how they were created. Y- uh, Yaakov was created without that. I mean, he was created like a tzaddik. And Esau was created to be a Benini, but he... To struggle, but he didn't. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't make that choice. Then he did He did. He did. Oh, actually, so when it comes to Esav, Yishmal did tshuva. Esav didn't. But 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 listen to this. Esav, thank you for 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 mentioning that. Esav, his. You know, we always have about origin stories. What was Esav's end story? So if you recall, and this is based on the midrash and the Talmud, when. Jacob, so the whole family ends up, remember Joseph goes to Egypt, anyway, the whole family ends up in Egypt. And Jacob, Yaakov, lives the last 17 years of his life in Egypt. Then he passes away. And he tells his family, do not bury me in Egypt, take me back to the promised land, Canaan, right, take me back to the promised land. 
and, uh, and bury me in the, in, with my ancestors in the cave of Machpelah in Hebron. Okay, and so they take, they take um, Jacob's remains to Israel, or Canaan, you know, the land that would become known as Israel. Isn't Esau up there? Ah, ah. So what happens is Esau is standing there, his twin brother. He says, no, no. We're twins. We each get a plot, right? Me and my brother each get a, we're two sons. We're both heirs of my father of Isaac. We each get, there's two spaces left. He had one space. I have the other space. He used his space for his wife, Leah, who passed away. He already buried his wife there. I have the next spot. I have the last spot. You can't, can't, can't take both spots. And a whole ruckus, ruckus, more than a ruckus, ruckus plus, ruckus max. It was a, it was a tumult. It's like tumult. HBO Max, huh? A tumult. It was a tumult. tumult. It was a brouhaha. Oh, it was a brouhaha. It oh, raised. I know it was that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This was the level of brouhaha. <laughs> anyway, so a whole fiasco ensues because Asav is adamant. Now, listen to this. Like a lot of the, the, a lot of his family was there in this burial procession. They all came up, and one of them was um, his name was Chushim, the son of Don. Oh, one second. In the meantime, they send Naphtali one of Jacob's children, back to Egypt to get the document where Esau sold his birthright to his brother. Because if you sold the birthright, then you lost both spots at this point. right? It's like if you're living in New York City and you have a parking spot and you sell it, you can't park there. That's how it works. Even if you live in Atlanta and sell your parking spot, you still can't park there. But anyway, so, 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 so Naphtali, who's swift as a deer, Right, that's his, that's his like, um, animal spirit, right? In the, so he's running back, he's heading back to Egypt. Reminds me of a story. See, I'm gonna, I will now interrupt myself consistently. So we were counselors in, in um, Huntington Beach, in Long Beach, California, when it was years ago, like, I don't know, 25 years ago. Me and my friends. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We were counselors in, in, in California for the summer in a day camp. Really like beautiful big day, Chabad day camp. Um, and it was July 4th weekend. And so we figured, it was actually July 4th was on a Sunday. So we figured what better way, and camp was off, I think, maybe that Monday, maybe Friday, whatever. So we went down to San Diego for Shabbos. And then we figured what better way to celebrate the birth of America and going to Tijuana. So we go down. <laughs> so that's right. That obviously <laughs> sounds very patriotic. No, we're like, let's go to Tijuana. Why? Because I don't know. They sell those uh, chess sets that are very cool that people had back then. I don't know. So, anyway, so we, we go to Tijuana. Did you get a chess set? We drive. No, because I couldn't haggle properly. Yeah, okay. I don't know. I wasn't able to, like, anyone been to Tijuana before? I was trying to, like, I don't know. I was very unsuccessful. Maybe I got something. We tried to get like some tchotchkes, I don't know, whatever. So we go, we drive down to Tijuana and, uh, and, and, and we're there and I think we had to park somewhere and then rent a car or something because you don't drive your own car in. I remember there was something going on over there with, anyway, so we, we're on our way back out and we come to the U.S. border, right? Yes, we come to the U.S. border. And it's like Sunday, July 4th in the afternoon, probably early afternoon, like maybe 2, 3 o'clock. It was the time when you, need, you didn't need a passport to go to Mexico. Yeah. 
so I so here's the story. Here's the story. So right, right. You didn't. So they asked everybody in the car, where are you from? Yeah, so they're like, where are you from? Everyone's like, America, America, America. There was one guy from Australia. He says, Australia. They're like, okay, do you have your passport? He's like, no. You can't come in. <laughs> you can't come in. <laughs> Great. <laughs> His last name was Kramer. It's like, Kramer. Right? Like, Did you send Naftali to get it? Yeah. So what we do is we leave him at the border with, with one guy. No, with me. It, so there was like, I think probably five guys in the car. So three of the guys stay in Mexico with the Australian fellow. And me and, some, me and someone else drive all the way up to Long Beach, get his passport, drive all the way back down, bust him out of, bust him out of uh, Mexico. I felt like <laughs> Naftali. So anyway, so Naftali is running back to Egypt to get the paperwork to show and prove that Esau should move out of the way and let's bury Yaakov. In the meantime, there's a guy, Chushim. He was the son of Dun. Dun was one of the 12 sons of, of Jacob. And so his, grandson, his son was Chushim. He was called Chushim. He was deaf. And he is not sure what's going on here, but he sees his grandfather's coffin is waiting and, and Esau is standing there. He doesn't know what's going on. He takes out a, this is going to a little graphic. He takes out a sword and says, let's end this right now. Pow. He, uh, sounds a little bit, a little he bit gory. Himself? He killed Esau. No way. He decapitated him. He kills Esau and his head, his head rolls into the cave of Machpelah. Oh, so he got his wish. So his head is buried there. And according to Kabbalah, the way Kabbalah, I, okay, it got a little grosser than I remembered or than I was like conceptualizing in my head. However, here's the point. Kabbalah says, what does it mean that his head is buried there on a deeper level? It means that Esau's potential always remained holy. In other words, in practice, he didn't conquer his innate drives, but he could have. His potential was holy. His head was holy. He had a holy source. He just didn't didn't control his body. He just didn't control it. Someone who has negative drives is not unholy. Could be the holiest person if they're in control. But if they don't, then they can go into that unholy space. One could say it's like Elohim in Havaya. Esau was like Elohim. Elohim struggling. struggling, everything like that. Yeah, the tzaddik is like Havaya, beyond the world. Yeah, yeah. So if Nefesh Bahamut stayed outside... His animal soul remained outside. And his, his, his pure potential rolled in. Now, I've got to say, our patriarchs... Yeah. Yeah. We're not the gravest of fathers. They, well. They're very questionable. Abraham, he took Yitzchak to the Akedah. He sent away Ishmael. Very fatherly. Yitzchak, with the blessings, come on, give me a break. Well, he wanted to bless his son. Yeah, but still. It was, anyway, that, I'll, 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 I'll say this. And Yaakov, he sent his boys off. On, on a thing, and one gets killed in a in, in a pit. Then. I will say I will say this: there was definitely a lot of family drama in the Bible. The first time you find consistently, this is a theme that you find throughout the Book of Genesis: sibling rivalry. Yeah, so think about it: it's all sibling rivalry. Cain and Abel, the first two siblings in history, Cain and Abel fighting. Then you have Yitzchak and Yishmael. 
Yaakov and Esav, Joseph and his brothers. They're always fighting. The first two brothers that get along, Moshe and Aaron, Moses and Aaron. And Menashe and Ephraim, yeah. But they weren't vying for power necessarily. Um, although you're right, Menashe and Ephraim, because one was blessed before the other, he could have taken it personally. You're right. It's a good point. But the first one's in a real position of leadership, Moshe and Aaron. And, and we see where that ended in, in, a good, in a good place. Let's look at this next piece, delicacies. Sure. Yeah. It's not in the. No, it's in the midrash or the Talmud. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. It's a family story. Yeah. 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 He was there. He was one of the children of Yaakov, so he was there by the funeral. So and he was apparently quick. So they sent him back to quickly, like me. I was one of the two guys that went to get the passport for my buddy. Like, okay, you can drive fast. So, I, so he went back to get it. In the meantime, it was taken care of, apparently. Yeah. What did Esau do that was so horrible? Well, we didn't get into the, to the details. According to our tradition, he was a trapper. He trapped people, women, and money. He killed, he stole, and he... Right. Philander, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what our tradition says. Let's look at delicacies. Let's look at delicacies. Now, again, again, to, so, so just to play off of that. So, Asav, he could have wanted to do all of those, but hold himself back, and that would have been the greatest of the great. Even greater, as we'll see now, the greater than, than the tzaddik. But what's the reciprocal of that for the tzaddik? The tzaddik doesn't have that temptation. I know, but so... Why not? I, you know what I'm saying? What's his temptation? That Sadiq doesn't have. That's not his mission. His mission is to, to walk down that path of purity. So we don't really have a 100% pure choice. Meaning the, tza- the, right. bad, the Russia right. could choose to be Correct. Good, the tza- but the tza- is the Tzadik going to choose to be Russia? Correct. No. The tzaddik is, only, that's why there's only a few. So rare. Yeah. The tzaddik, the tzaddik is the template of what perfect behavior looks like so that the rest of us struggling being in him are like, oh, that's what, that, that's what that looks like. Even though for them, it was not the product of, of difficult choice. For us, it would be, but it's a template. It's a perfect template. It's kind of like you're but painting, a, tr- it's like you're painting a tree. Russia. That's not fair. He was born a tzaddik. No. <laughs> let's let's look inside. You never, you never met a Let's look inside. Delicacies. Not norm. No. All right, Heber, Let's look inside. Bottom of page one. Delicacies. It came to pass. Here's the story of the blessings. It came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called Esau his elder son and he said to him, "My son," and he said to him, "Here I am." Next page. Second, second side of page one. He said, Behold, now I have grown old. I do not know the day of my death. So now sharpen your implements, your sword, and take your bow and go forth in the field and hunt game for me and make me delicacies such as I love and bring them to me and I will eat in order that my soul will bless you before I die. This is, of course, the story that we've been talking about you know, for two weeks now. The story of the blessings where, Esau, or sorry, where Isaac Yitzchak, which is to bless his older son, and he asks him before he blesses him, bring me food. Commentaries talk about this. Why did he need food before he blessed him? The idea is that sometimes a blessing has to have a physical kind of vehicle for it to happen. So if he gives him food, then the blessing can come. Anyway, let's look, let's look at and what... And his trait, too. 
It was, no, he was able to shecht kosher. With a um, bow? Yeah, that's what it says in the Talmud. He was able to really? shecht along the side. Yeah. Take a look at Tanya chapter 27. This next line is from Tanya. And I realized I didn't italicize it, so I am now. Okay, next, chapter 27 of Tanya. There are two kinds of divine pleasure. Oh, because look at, um, look at the last sentence of the text that we just read, where he says, and make me delicacies. See that word delicacies? Delicacies is plural. And so in Tanya, the Altarebbe, the founder of Chabad, he explains why there, is, why there are two forms of delicacies. There are two kinds of divine pleasure. One from the complete annihilation of the citra achra, that means the other side, the dark side, and the conversion of bitter to sweet and of darkness to light, which is accomplished by tzaddikim. In other words, where there's no more darkness, there's only light. That's one pleasure. And the second pleasure is when the citra achra, the dark side, is subdued while it is still at its strongest and most powerful, soaring like an eagle, and from this height, God topples it in response to human initiative, i.e. as a result of one's effort at subduing the citra achra in his soul. This is accomplished by Bainanim. In other words, God derives two forms of pleasure. One, the pleasure of perfection, and the other one, the pleasure born of intense struggle. Let's continue. This is alluded to in the verse, and make me delicacies such as I love, where the word matamim, delicacies, is written in the plural, indicating two types of pleasure. These words, again, Kabbalah understands things on a deeper level. This is not, these are not just the words of of Isaac to his son, but these words are the charge of the Shekhinah, the divine presence to his children, the community of Israel, as explained in Tikkun Zohar in Kabbalah. Just as with material food, that means like physical food, there are two kinds of delicacies, one of sweet and luscious foods, and the other of sharp or sour articles, but have been well spiced and prepared so that they become delicacies which revive the soul, so too are there two kinds of spiritual delicacies. I love that last paragraph because it brings it down so practically. When it comes to food, you can have something sweet that is easy on the palate. It's sweet, it's smooth. You don't need to teach anyone to appreciate ice cream. It's just, it's just sweet. But then, you sell ice cream also. Okay. That's what I meant. I meant chef's okay. ice cream at Ali's Cookies. hundred okay. percent. Okay. Skated. Chal wow. of Israel. Right. Then you have, so that's one, one type of food is easy. It's easy in the palate. And then you have something a little bit more challenging. It's spicy. It's flavored. It, 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 you bite it, it bites you back, right? It's, it's, it's a complex umami infused. I think that's what the kids are calling it today, right? It's this complex infused flavor food. And that's a little bit more challenging. It's cha- more challenging to eat. But it's enjoyable. Two types of delicacies, two types of gastronomical or palate pleasure. One, smooth, easy, sweet. The other one, challenging. God derives pleasure from two types of individuals. The pleasure of the tzaddik, smooth and easy, no friction. The pleasure of the benini, the struggler. The one who wants with every fiber there being to do the wrong thing and who still challenged, pushes against it and ekes out the right thing despite all odds. That is beautiful. Question or no? That is another form of delicacy. I asked before a few minutes ago, how would you rank the two? And many of you said, how would we rank the two? We would put 
the bainani over the tzaddik. And indeed, although it's not in the quote, chapter 27, that I put here, indeed in Tanya, he further says that the pleasure that's derived from the bainani is even greater than the pleasure derived from the tzaddik. On one level, if you're thinking about perfection, the tzaddik t- wins, the tzaddik takes that every, every day of the week. But the pleasure, the complex, sophisticated pleasure born of contrast, that is, that is, the, um, that is the repertoire of the Bainani, and that is what gives incredible pleasure. To think about it in other terms that we've shared many times before, it's the difference between angels and human beings. Angels are perfect. Angels, like tzaddikim, are like angels, right? Snapshots of perfection. It's easy. It's pure. It's simple. There's pleasure in that. There's beauty in that. But there's an even great, on one level, there's an even greater beauty in the Benini, the one who's struggling and who does the right thing despite the odds. Now, yeah. Say the same concept as the Baal Shuvah. Yes. Yes. The Talmud says that the place, what is the Baal Shuvah? We'll, we'll translate it. The Baal Shuvah means the one who has come back from the dark side, the returnee, the one who's walked along a negative place and now has come to a positive place. And we're all there. We've all been in negative places. And hopefully, in a, in, and, we, and maybe we're going back and forth as, as life does, right? As, as people do. We go here, we go there, we go here, we go there. And, and, and the reality is that Talmud says, in, this, in the place, in the place where Bali Tshuva stand, Sandikim can't stand there. Right? They, can't, they can't reach that space. They've never experienced it. They've never experienced it. The, 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 the pleasure, it's like speaking of children. Dr. Maxi asked before, when you have a child who excels at doing the right thing naturally, is a, is a, is a people pleaser, uh, a studious person, a studious student, um, someone who's a perfectionist, okay, and they do well. It's easy, right? Again, if it's easy, then it's easy. But imagine the student who, who's not a natural student, right? Who's not naturally diligent in studying and who works really hard. Uh, so, so you have the other student who doesn't have to work at all and gets 100 on every test. And then you have the other student who works really hard to get a 70. And one might derive greater pleasure and satisfaction and nachas from the kid who worked really hard. Because at the end of the day, it's not just about perfection. It's about, it's about effort. effort and about um, power. When I say power, I don't mean control. I mean like the energy that's being, that's being um, utilized. The energy of the bainani is much greater. Like the energy output of the bainani is much greater than that sounded. Sadik is smooth and easy. The energy of the bainani is it's much more volatile. And because of that, it's much more spicy. God likes spicy. Ask yourself a simple question. If God really wanted perfection, why did he create most of us not perfect? When I say most of us, pretty much all of us not perfect. And Tanya's conclusion is, you know why? Because God really likes spicy food. More like spicy food. More than the sweet stuff. God likes spicy food. Right? That's it. So there's more spice. God, God, and so you know, the question was asked, like, so why are we given such a hard, you know, why, are, why is the deck sometimes stacked against us? It seems like whether internally or externally, and the answer is because that's the purpose of life, is to have the deck stacked against and to push against and to still do the right thing despite everything going on inside or outside. Now, all of this, 
is the introduction to our text. Our text, and I, I probably ended last week's class the same way, this text is going to deal with two spy stories. Um, two Jewish spy stories. Spy story one and spy story two, the sequel. Now, you know the sequel is never as good as the original, right? That's the way it is. I'm kidding. But it's all Torah. <laughs> so it's all... keeps getting better. Does it get better? Wow. Listen. Wow. <laughs> oh, now we're going to have uh, <laughs> film, it's, it's film debates. It's, it's a Machalikas. Siskel and Ebert. Uh, no. Remember those guys? Shammai and Hill. Yeah. Shammai and Hill. Yeah. Yeah, that's their Hebrew name. Yeah. <laughs> it may um, very well be. All right, I wanted. So yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's where we're headed. Now, I want to quote here one last thing before we close out. Um, two souls. This is on the on the bottom of the second the second half, um, where it says two souls. This is very um, very instructive. These are the first two chapters of Tanya, or excerpts from the first two chapters of Tanya. And he speaks about the two souls, and this is really going to take us into, into our text. Um, and remember, the two souls are at the core of the conflict. If you have two active souls, you will be in conflict. If you have one active soul, well, then either you're a tzaddik or a rasha. But if you have two active souls, then now you have that tension inside. So here we go. Here he explains how most of us, in fact, he says every one of us, has these two souls. Every Jew, whether righteous or wicked, Possesses two souls, as it is written in a shamot, souls which I have made. There are, these are two nefasho, two souls and life forces. And here he describes, and we're going to go through this very quickly, here he describes the two souls. One soul originates in the klipa and sitra achra. Klipa means shell, sitra achra means the other side. It is this nefesh, soul, that is clothed in the blood of, of a human being, giving, giving life to the body, as it is written for the nefesh of the flesh, i.e. the nefesh that sustains physical and corporeal life, is in the blood. Now, it doesn't mean that if you take blood and run it through Theranos' machine, sorry, run it through, um, too soon, run it through uh, the tests that you'll see a soul inside. What it means is this soul is the life force, the physical life force of the body, which is consistent with the blood, i.e. the life force of the physical body. Now, from this nefesh, which is the lower nefesh, that's from, this, from this stems all the evil characteristics deriving from the four evil elements within it, namely anger and pride emanate from the element of fire, which rises upward. The appetite for pleasures emanate from the element of water, for water promotes the growth of all kinds of pleasurable things. Frivolity and scoffing, boasting and idle talk emanate from the element of air, like air that lacks substance. And sloth and melancholy uh, emanate from the element of earth. From this soul stems also the good, the good traits inherent in every Jew's character, such as compassion and benevolence. His point is that the first soul, which, is, which we always call the, in, in Chassidus, we call the animal soul or the natural soul, right? So this soul is not evil, but all of the evil characteristics stem from it. So anger and pride represent the element, the negative element of fire. Right, fire is this you know raging force, this 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 severe force, anger and pride. Um, you have water. Water is synonymous with pleasure, frivolity and scoffing, boasting and idle talk. Hot air is air, and then you have the heavy stuff, slot laziness and and sadness that emanate from the element of the negative element of earth. So the point here is that the natural soul that we have inside of us 
is the source of these, of all these negative traits. The second Jewish soul is truly a part of God above, quoting from Job, as it is written, and he blew into his nostrils the soul of life, and you blew it into me from the daily liturgy. And that refers to the second soul. And so what this does is this sets up the, um, the cage match that exists within each of us between pitting one soul against the other soul. One soul is always pulling down into a space of anger and sadness and laziness and pride and pleasure and hedonism and all that stuff. So you have one part of us that's pulling down into lowly spaces. And then you have another part of us that's always pulling up into holy spaces. And because of this, we stand at that crossroads or we stand in the middle of that conflict, of that, of that tension. Take a rubber band and you pull it from one side and from the other side. And what's going to happen? In the middle, there's tension. We're being pulled in two different directions. We have one soul that's pulling us up. The other soul is pulling us down. And we're, nebuch, shame for us, we're in the middle. And it, it, it's a difficult place to be in. So that's what's going on internally. But as we've seen over the last few weeks, that's only one part of the equation. One question is, what's going on inside? In a bainani, there's tension. But the real question is, what's going on on the outside? How are, you sh- how are you showing up to the world? Are you showing up with the same conflict that you have on the inside to the outside? Do you present yourself to your loved ones sometimes as happy and sometimes as enraged? Or do you show up in a holy way, in a healthy way, channeling your higher self despite the fact that your lower self is pulling within. That's the mark of the Bainani. The mark of the Bainani is someone who can withstand the inner turbulence and present and show up in a way that is holy and healthy, kind and generous, giving and nurturing, positive and proud. That is the mark of the Bainani. The Russia is someone who allows the inner demons to take hold of their behavior. The tzaddik is not even struggling. It's the bainani that is the hero of, of this, this life. In heaven, souls of tzaddikim and angels rule the roost, right? In some other space, maybe Rishayim are, are, are ruling, the, ruling the place. This world, this lifetime, this space is the space of the bainani. In fact, the book of Tanya, which is the, the, the core work of Chabad Hasidic philosophy, the real title of that book, Sefer Shel Benonim, the book of the Benoni. Many, many great scholars, many great rabbis wrote books for the tzaddik. But the founder of the Chabad movement recognized that that is outside the reach of most of us. Who are you writing that book for? How to be a tzaddik? <laughs> How to be a tzaddik in thirty days? Who, who's get, who's actually going to be able to pull that off? I think actually it's called tzaddik for dummies. Tzaddik for dummies, right? <laughs> who's who's going to pull that off? So the author ever said, you know what? Don't try to be a tzaddik. It's you're going to end up disappointed. Try to be a bainani. I feel like this is so 2023. Embrace the fact that you're not perfect, and because of that. You can show up in a healthy way. If you feel bad about imperfection, you're more likely to show up in a negative space. If you have an expectation of perfection, let me explain what I'm saying. Dr. Bright Santanya, he says, people come to me and they complain that they've been davening for 30 years 
and they're still being inundated with distracting thoughts when praying. Why is that? It must be that I've been wasting the last 30 years. I'm making no progress. He says, you're making no progress? Who says you're making no progress? Every time you reject a distracting thought and refocus on your prayers, you're making progress. Oh, you're asking why you're not, why you haven't yet uh, uh, slayed the, the inner dragon, why you haven't evac- evicted all of those disturbing thoughts in totality? Oh, that's because you're not a tzaddik. Oh, you thought you were a tzaddik. Who told you that? Why are you thinking so highly of yourself? You're a bainani. You're an aspiring bainani. And there's no shame in that. On the contrary, as we'll see in this text, that is the loftiest space to be in, as we'll see in this, in this text. The loftiest place to be. But it comes from a misunderstanding of self. If our expectation is perfect, is a tzaddik, and we have all these inner things, these inner demons, then we feel bad about ourselves, we feel bad about feeling bad, and that, that spins into a whole chaotic space. So embrace your inner bainani, embrace the struggle, don't succumb to the negativity, but embrace the fact that that's what that inner landscape looks like. And then you're more positioned from a place of strength to push it down and say, I know how you feel. Acknowledge your feel. I know how you feel. You tell yourself, I know how you feel. I know you really want to be part of that conversation that is going to take down Shmerel. And you really want to because you're not a tzaddik. And you have that inside. But you also have the ability to just say no. The candy boxes in the 80s when I was growing up, you opened up the little, right? Just say no. That once happened with me. I was walking home from school, from Yeshiva, in Pittsburgh. I walked by a car. Some guy rolls down his window and says, hey, kid, you want to do drugs? Like something like straight up like that. And I'm like, no. And I'm like, I just said no. It works. <laughs> it works. Anyway. All right. What's the moral of the story? Where was he parked? Embrace <laughs> on Phillips Avenue. Cross street. Yeah. Very residential. Think he's still there? No. <laughs> oh, you're asking for a friend. All right. Anyway. So here's Shady Side. Oh, very good. Very good. Squirrel Hill. Um, okay. So. In summation, most of us are abandoning. Most of us deal with the struggle. The struggle is born of dueling souls within us. And as Isaac told his son, prepare for me delicacies, alluding to the fact that God enjoys two types of flavor, the flavor of the tzaddik, the flavor of the bainani. And in fact, as we'll discover, the bainani flavor is way more exciting than the tzaddik. Tzaddik is way too predictable Right? It's almost like boring. The Bainani, that's exciting. All right, so this week, feel the inner struggle, push it away for the moment, and embrace the Bainani. Can someone be a Bainani every moment of every day? Can someone actually be a Bainani full time? The answer is conceptually, conceptually, it's hard. It's hard to never let that through. It's really hard to be a gatekeeper. To never allow that, it's, you're right, it's really hard. But like anything, one moment at a time, one struggle at a time. I remember hearing a story where there was, uh, as Rabbi said when he was a kid, he asked like an elder chassid, like, how, do you, how, how does one become, how does one live like a bainani? He said, for the next 30 seconds, can you make sure that you're not doing anything wrong? 
we're saying anything wrong? So sure, just keep on doing that. <laughs> Easier said than done. Easier said than done. But conceptually, theoretically, possible. All right? So kids, stay out of trouble this week. <laughs> All right. See you guys. Um, I hope you enjoyed. Quick announcement, a scheduling announcement. Um, so next week we're on. I will be out of town for a few weeks in July. I'll be up in Boston. Um, but you here's that guy. <laughs> no, you and that guy. Very, that was busy. So, but question for you: July Fourth weekend. Is anybody here July Fourth weekend? July Fourth. Oh, we. So it looks like a decent I number. So July. Okay. So I'm here July Fourth weekend. So here's the thing: um, we may do class. I'll ask again next week, and we'll take another poll. We'll see, you know, if we can get some more feedback on that. I may do it because I'm gone the 9th and the 16th, and I would hate to take three weeks off. I guess maybe if you're not in town, maybe you could still, you know, Zoom or whatever, join remotely. I haven't yet made the decision, so it's still pending. Um, now, so that's regarding this class in the month of July. It, uh, but in, in the interim, so this uh, this Tuesday night, we have our second session of the brand new course called Legends of the Talmud. It's studying the book of Ein Yaakov, which is a work that calls Talmudic stories, taught by Rabbi Naftali Zekon. If that intrigues you, if you like a good story, if you like studying or, or, or exploring the study of Talmud, join us Tuesday night, 8 p.m., 8 to 9 p.m., right here for Legends of the Talmud. And stay tuned. For, uh, for breaking news about upcoming classes. Also, I should announce that this Shabbat morning will be the, the final session of the Rosh Chodesh Society uh, course for women, um, starting at 10.30 in the synagogue. I know I'm giving you like information at the end of the week, but hey, it's coming to mind, and my, my, my resolution this morning was whatever hits my head, I'm going to say. Wait, that's dangerous. All right. Um, <laughs> good to see you all. Now, I see the chat. I notice now has the number eight, which means that I missed a lot of, a lot of uh, comments. Stormy, okay? Fran, hi. Yaakov, who's going to the Lush and Hara? Oh, that's hilarious. Apple was mushroom, okay. Oh, Yetzir Hara, yeah. Yetzir Hara. Oh, what is the antidote to sloth and melancholy? That's a good question. Okay, so it means battling, battling that inner heaviness, as it were. Um, I don't know if there's a quick fix. I don't think there's a quick fix. All right. Well, good to see you guys. Matt, it's great to see you. Hope you're enjoying the, uh, the, uh, the books. Matt's in his new place in Kansas. For those of you that, uh, that know and love Matt. I'm right. Matt's, uh, yeah. Oh, there you go. Matt's got his Tanya ready to go. I pulled, I pulled today's translation from Lessons in Tanya. Um, all right, Ellen, good to see you. Who did we not welcome? I think we welcomed everybody. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, take one. If, if you're zooming in, absolutely, take a copy, for sure. All right, we'll see you guys. Shavua Tov. Great to see you. Take care, everybody. Sorry, I wasn't there last week, but I had a meeting at 11. So no worries, Lisa, no worries. Glad that you're here now. All right, we'll see you. Take care. Have a good week, Shavua Tov. Recording stop. How do we get the Ruben Goldberg Ruben Gold.